If you would take your Bibles and turn to the book of James. Uh, do you mind if I deviate this morning a little bit? Uh, you can use your notes for notes, but it won't be. I'm not going to be doing those notes today. I figure that if God kind of thumps me on the chest and my heart, that maybe it would, wouldn't be a bad idea to do the same to you. So, um, <clears throat> last week I had a few days off, as you know, I wasn't here last Sunday, and uh, Trina and I got away, we just kind of wanted to do some R&R and just be together, have some fun together, uh, kind of talk about the stage of life that we're in and what's happening and what we're doing, uh, what, what's kind of going on within us and what's going on around us, and just trying to kind of calibrate where everything that's going on with us. And now we do this thing, we golf together. It used to be that when you go on vacation, she would always ride in the cart. And um, she really enjoyed that because we usually go to, you know, it's beautiful golf courses. And uh, now she started playing and it's gotten a lot more expensive. <laughs> and so, uh, but it's really fun. I, I, I love playing with her and I'm kind of her coach and I coach her up all the time. And, um, but when, when we go out together, she always likes to go so that we can just go out the two of us, not with anybody else, unless we know them, like, you know, people from Creekside or family, uh, because she doesn't, you know, she's just pretty new. And so she feels uncomfortable hitting the golf ball in front of a lot of people. If you can imagine, if you ever hit a golf ball, you know why. And uh, it's not, it looks easy, but it's, it's, it's kind of difficult. So we went to this golf course and... Um, we, we went in and I asked if we could get off, you know, just the two of us. I didn't think we could because just looking around, I could tell it was really busy. I said, no, no, we're going to have to put you out with two. So we go out with another couple and um, it was an interesting couple. Most golfers have great etiquette, manners, kindness, and they talk. Well, this was an older couple and the gal, she was like about three foot seven and 82 years old and just really, really sweet. I mean, sweet. Uh, now, the other guy was a guy, and uh, her husband, and I went up to him, and, hey, I'm Terry, and he kind of didn't even stick out his hand at first, and he kind of looks at me like, well, what do you want to do, you know, and, and okay, and, and that was how it basically went. She was super sweet, and he was a crumbudgeon, and, uh, and that doesn't happen very often in golf, and I think it's, well, I've got reasons why, but you know, I tried, we really tried to be nice to him and encourage him and hey, good shot, whatever. And uh, he just wasn't going to have any part of it. And by the time we got to the ninth hole, we were done. And they just said, they said, well, you know, we're done. Nine holes is enough for us. And so they quit and inside I'm going, yes. <laughs> and Trina was going, yes, because we thought we'd get to go to the really pretty part of the course and get to play just together, the two of us. And uh, I could, you know, and then we could kind of take some time where I could work with her and, you know, review and teach her a few things about her swing. So we, it's a little bit of a ways to walk from the ninth hole to the 10th. And we come around this corner and the hole's a little bit of ways. And, and, and I saw two people there that they weren't on the front nine. So they had just started them. Of course, it was really busy. A lot of time you're standing around. <clears throat> Excuse me. I saw these two people. And I turned to Trina and I said, listen, honey, etiquette is that they're probably going to invite us to play with them. And I just want to tell them no. And I don't do that very often. But we really did. We, we just really wanted, kind of needed some time together and just to be able to do our thing. And, and that wasn't even the main reason. The main reason is I saw who they were. 
Now, when I say I saw who they were, I, I, I quickly uh, drew some general assumptions, okay? Now, look at me. You got to hear me. You got you to make sure that you don't miss anything I say now. I looked at them and I assessed them. I wasn't judging them, okay? So just know that because I'm not a prejudiced person. I'm going to talk a little bit about that today. But I looked at them and I said, okay, I think I know where they're coming from. And I, before we got close, I said, listen, honey, they're going to probably invite us because that's what etiquette is in golf. If you've got a twosome with another twosome, you go. So I said, I just want to tell you right up front, I'm going to tell them no. And she goes, oh, good, you know. And, uh, and, and I said, I, I want to play with you, but I, more importantly, I just... I'm in a place where I don't want to have to get into a conversation. Because when you golf with people and you're standing around, uh, ultimately, these are the kind of questions. So, you know, you talk about all the small talk. And then, you know, by about the second or third hole, it's, so what do you do for work? Well, I'm a preacher. Okay, now in this situation, listen, I, I never back away from that. I kind of assess it. A lot of times now what I tell people is I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I do at the end of the round. Because it just gets weird. You know, some people go, oh, my gosh, she's a preacher. Oh, you know, they've been cussing all this time. And they go, <laughs> like, wow. Oh, I'm really sorry. I says, hey, no biggie, man. And uh, whatever. It doesn't bother me. And um, <clears throat> but, but this, this situation, because have you ever been with people or groups of people that you know? Even, you know, if you disagree with them, then you're against them. Have you ever been with people like that? There are groups of people that I know of that I've dealt with in my life that if you don't agree with what they believe and say, then you are against them. They really can't buy this idea of, I can still love you and accept you for who you are and what you believe and how you live, and we can still have common ground. And I knew that this was the potential situation that I was going to enter into with Trina if it happened. And I just emotionally, I didn't want to deal with it. I'd just gone through a crumb mudging with nine holes, and I just wanted to enjoy golf. And I didn't want the question to come up, what do you do? And then, because the next question sooner or later probably would have been, well, what do you believe about this? And what does your church teach about this? Not embarrassed? I... It was just that day, I didn't want to go there, and I didn't want to have seven holes where I got to defend or explain or have people get upset because of what I do and what I believe. You with me? Yeah. Okay, I'll tell you the rest of the story in a minute. <laughs> so, I want you to turn to James chapter 2. James, I tell you, listen, when God bugs me, man, you get it. So, here we go. We're in Proverbs, and I want to start off with some Proverbs because it's so practical and it's, it's, it's everything. And I really want to talk to you today just about, about seeing and giving people value. Proverbs talks a lot about that. I just quickly went through and got a few of them. Uh, Proverbs 9.16 says, The needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Proverbs 11.12 says, He who despises his neighbor lacks sense. But a man of understanding keeps silent. Proverbs 14, 21, he who despises his neighbor's sins, but happy is he who is gracious to the poor. Proverbs 19, 17 says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he's going to repay uh, him for his deed. Proverbs 22, 2, the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of all of them. 
in there. The black and the white and the brown and the yellow all meet together because the Lord is the maker of them all. The rich and the poor, the have, the have, whatever it is, there's principles that are far reaching here. So I'm not just talking about the poor, I'm talking about people in all different lots and places of life. Proverbs 31.9 says, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy and the marginalized and the disenfranchised. Now, James in the New Testament has been likened to Proverbs of the Old Testament because it is so straightforward. It's kind of like a ball-peen hammer. I mean, it just hits you. You know, it doesn't try and be nice, and it doesn't try and be, it's just, boom, this is it. I have a, one of the key books that I have everybody read, one of my life-changing books. Uh, the pastor in that just said this about the book of James, that it's the one book you can read, and it will turn you black and blue spiritually. You know, I mean, it's pretty strong stuff, so fasten your seatbelts, because I want to talk to you today uh, just about this whole thing about seeing people and making sure that we give them value. James chapter 2, beginning of verse 1, says this. Now, my brothers and sisters, hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ without showing favoritism or being prejudiced. Because if you have favoritism, you're probably going to have some prejudice over here. For suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring. He's dressed in fine clothes. But then there's this poor man dressed in dirty clothes, and they also come in. If you look with favor on the man wearing fine clothes so that you say, sit here in this good place, and yet you say to the poor man, why don't you stand over here or sit at the floor by my footstool? Haven't you discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts and intentions? Listen, my dear brothers, don't, now didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? Yet you dishonor that poor man. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Don't they blasphemy the noble name that you bear? If you really care, if you really carry out the royal law prescribed in the scriptures, which is love your neighbor as yourself, then you are doing well. But if you show favoritism, you commit sin and the conviction of the law's transgressions. It is possible. Uh, one more scripture. Romans 2.11 says this. Uh, Romans 2.11 says there's no favoritism with God. That's the verse. There is no favoritism with God. Isn't it possible for many of us, some of us, to walk around with kind of a, a little bit of an unpublished list in our minds of certain people that we feel comfortable around and others that we don't feel comfortable around. Now, Creeksiders are make up, made up of wonderful people, and I'm sure hopefully nobody in here does. But it's a human, it's a fact of human life. That we have a tendency to look at people. And I'm not talking about our good friends and say, you know, I'm not talking about wanting to spend time with good friends. That, that that's favoritism. The idea is favoritism versus prejudice. Oh, I'm going to favor this person because of this, and, and I'm not going to really give that person any time or whatever. And many of us have a hard time admitting to ourselves that we can be partial to people that we interact with. And James 
And Paul, in the book of Romans, addressed this passage, as does Jesus. See, we do, we have our preferences and our biases. And I'm not just talking about our friends, I'm just talking about people in general. A lot of us would rather be around rich people than the poor. Some of us are annoyed by the poor, aren't we? We feel superior to them, or it's easy to look around and go, just get a job. And we begin to get kind of flippant about it, and it begins to show where our heart is toward them. Some prefer to be with educated people. They don't want to be with people that don't have as far or as much academic prowess or haven't gotten as far in academia as they've done, so they kind of look down on them. Some would rather just uh, be with white-collar people because they would perceive them to have better experience in life or other things. Some people just want to be with blue-collar people, and they look down on white-collar people because they see them as the establishment, as the man upstairs or whatever else. And, they, and we get all of these biases. Some people come right out. They don't even try and hide their disdain for the LGBT communities. But I'll tell you what I think about it. I just let it rip. Some people come right out. They don't even try. For some of you, 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 you know, there's really bad people out there that you have a bias against. You know, people that love cats more than dogs. <laughs> Those of you that are Raider fans, over 49er fans. Uh, just I put a little humor in there to lighten the load a little bit. What about skin color? What's in your heart there? What's in our lives there? Some of us probably have some very strong preferences regarding skin color. Maybe it's possible some of us still tell jokes about different ethnicities. And I know, I know, you say, well, you know, it doesn't mean anything, it's just funny. No, it's not for that person. And, and hear me, just so you know, this isn't about political correctness, okay? This is just about spiritual heart stuff, okay? I think our culture has become well overly politically correct. But I also think that we need to make sure that those things that come out of our mouth, we understand oftentimes they're resident within our heart, and for us to be able to make light of another group of people and ethnicity or whatever speaks to some things in our heart. James says, friends, it's there. Paul says, friends, God's not that way. It needs to be exposed. And for some, it probably needs to be repented of. This is serious stuff, they say. It's very close to the heart of God. Tolerating favoritism or being prejudiced, it can split churches. It can cause fights at schools. It can cause fights at work. It can lead to international bombings. And I'm, that's not hyperbole, it's true. All of those things can happen because of these things that can be resident within our heart. And it has to ultimately be rooted out. So where does it start? What are the roots to favoritism and, and prejudice? Well, researchers um, are, are pretty clear that the origin of it starts in the families. If a, children, if a child or children grow up in a home where a mama or daddy is always talking about a group of people, an ethnicity or um, a skin color of person or a group of people, if they're putting them down and berating them and speaking badly about them, the chances are very high that those kids will take that in and that they will carry that into their adulthood. And then oftentimes they will transmit and transfer that to their own kids. 
And as you know, for those of us who are moving through the years, it's a lot harder to change when you're older than when you're younger. The second way that people move toward prejudice or, and or favoritism is through their peer groups. And it's learned primarily in junior high and high school years. And I think that's definitely accentuated uh, in, in our culture right now because of social media, because, because a lot of students, young people, they want to be accepted. They want to be in the in-group. And so if you've got people that are speaking against a group, it's easy to dial into them. And once this toxic disposition of partiality and prejudice gets into your system, there's almost no human way out of it. It becomes a heart issue, and the only way that it comes is through a supernatural work and touch of God that begins to expose. And then there's repentance, and you begin to transform and say, that's not right. Jesus was a great example of this. He dealt with a lot of ostracization and ridicule and abuse from religious leaders of his day. And Jesus in Mark chapter 3, I'm not going to read from him, I'm going to tell you the story, but he heals a nobody that's really a somebody, and he makes that and wants those people to know. In Mark chapter 3, the religious leaders, they're becoming jealous of Jesus because he's growing in popularity. And so they want to trip him up, and they decided that they were going to come up with a way to discredit Jesus in a public setting. Well, the only place they thought that he might be vulnerable was in regards to the 10th commandment where it says, remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. To keep it holy means to set it apart unto God. Didn't give any more definition, but through the years, religious leaders begin to add all of these things to it that the Jewish people had to follow. You know, if your animal fell in the ditch, you couldn't pick it up because that would be working. You know, you couldn't clean dishes, that would be working. You couldn't help somebody, that would be working. And so they added all these man-made statements, stipulations, and traditions to it. And so they said, this is what we can do. Because Jesus, they'd already heard, he'd already been touching people and doing things on the Sabbath. Because he said, listen, Sabbath isn't for God, it's for you. It's to give you rest. It's not all this other stuff that you've come up with. Just set it aside. Honor God in it and through it and get yourself some rest. But they come up with all these crazy things that you could and couldn't do. So they put together this kind of sting operation for Jesus. And so the Pharisees invited Jesus to come and to, be, uh, to speak at their synagogue on a Sunday. And they probably found a withered, a guy with this, with the, they say he's got a withered arm. And they sit him in the front row. Because they know when Jesus sees the need, he's going to heal them. So they bring Jesus in, and he starts talking, and they're leaning in, and they're listening to Jesus, and they're thinking, come on, go for it, do it. And all of a sudden, Jesus sees the man with the withered hand, and he says, stand up. Now, Jesus knows what's going on, and he knows that as soon as he heals this guy, it's going to cost him. But he sees the guy, and he looks around, and the scripture says that first of all, he got angry. And then it says his heart began to grieve. And he sees this crowd packed with religious leaders and, and regular people that had heard about this man, Jesus, and they just want to see and hear and know him. And so they're all leaning in, wondering what he's going to do. You know why Jesus, I think, got angry? 
Because he looked around at all of these religious leaders of the day, the people that should have been shepherding God's people, Israel. He looked around and he realized they didn't give a flying rip about this man's withered hand. They didn't care about his destiny. They didn't care how he looked or about his life. He became simply a test case to trap Jesus and they begin to use him. And the Bible records, and if you read between the lines, you begin to see all this. Jesus knew that it was going to cost him, so what does he do? He has the man stand up, and he heals him. As soon as that happens, what happens? All of these guys, uh, these religious leaders, they begin to conspire together, and it's really here that begins to set in motion the Jewish people wanting to kill Jesus because of his violation of the Sabbath. So why does Jesus heal the man when he knew that it would cost him so much? I believe Jesus is saying to any thinking person, someone with a physical deformity, somebody with a handicap matters. And I want you all to know it. I want you religious leaders to understand that. This person has value. They deserve to be honored. They deserve to, be, to, to receive dignity and to love. Don't dishonor them, because when you do that, you're dishonoring the creator. You show them respect. You show them love. See, that's what Proverbs is always talking about, that we take care of the disenfranchised, that we help to the best of our ability, the people that we are placed in the re relational orbit to begin to help them. We can't do everybody, but we can sure ask God, who is it that you want me to do? Why is that? Because Jesus is saying, I want you to know this, people have value. People have value. Jesus in John chapter 4, him and the disciples are on this trip, and they're heading out of Jerusalem, and they've been traveling all day, and it's midday, it's hot, it's a really dusty trip, they're all thirsty and they're hungry, so they stop at this well. This well was on the outskirts of Samaria, and if you understand that the Samaritans and the Jews were enemies, as a matter of fact, a Jewish person would walk all their way around, take a longer trip to avoid going through Samaria because they considered Samaritans half-breeds. The enmity was such that it would have been like a John Bircher over here and a Ku Klux Klan over there coming into contact. That's, that's the strife, that's the enemy, uh, the, the enmity that they had toward one another. They would actually take a much longer, Jews would take a much longer trip so they wouldn't have to come into contact with them. So Jesus is sitting at this well trying to refresh himself and the disciples, he sends them into the town, into another town and says, yeah, just go get some McNuggets and some fries and bring it back. I'm going to sit here and rest up. I think Jesus had a bigger picture in mind because he understood he was going to come into contact with somebody. So there's this woman, this Samaritan woman that comes out. She's coming out alone, which was unusual at that time. Uh, the ladies would oftentimes come closer to the morning, and they would come in groups to travel and socialize, as women like to do now. She comes out alone. Why is that? Well, there's a few things that are in play here. Strike one against this woman. She's a Samaritan woman. 
Samaritan women and men, and especially Jewish men, didn't connect or talk or engage in anything. So she comes out, Jesus is sitting there, and she begins to share her life with him. Jesus begins to probe, and she wants to kind of talk about all these religious things, and Jesus begins to bore into her life. And as she's talking, she's revealing kind of some superficial stuff, and all of a sudden Jesus says to her, by the way, you've been married five times, haven't you? And she goes, you must be a prophet. She goes, yes, I have. They talk a little bit more, and Jesus goes, by the way, you're living with the sixth guy. She goes, oh, yeah. See, Jesus is showing her, revealing to her who she is, who he is, and ultimately who she is. So she's got all these strikes. She's a Samaritan woman talking to a man. She's been divorced five times, and now she's living with a guy. See, the ladies in her town didn't want to spend time with her because of her reputation and how she lived. But what's amazing is, is Jesus begins to speak to her, and he touches her soul, and she responds to the message. And what does she do? It says that she runs into town, and she says... Come see, come and see, I've met the prophet. Well, the disciples come back, and Jesus is kind of, kind of debriefing them and saying, this is what just happened, and he's telling them the great things that had happened in this lady's life. And toward the end of chapter 4, it says that they look out over the horizon, and all of a sudden there's this whole group of people, Samaritans, coming out from the city because they want to hear this prophet. I love that. Jesus takes time with this woman. He speaks into her life, not just her life, he speaks into her soul. And there's something that Jesus says, there are some things that Jesus says and probably doesn't say. He exposes who she is, but in the midst of that, she still feels loved and accepted and received by him enough that she's going to go in and tell the whole town. Today, there's still large segments of society, culture, even some in the United States, where women are not treated well. They have no say. They have very few rights. I mean, just look at the United States in the last year with the hashtag MeToo movement. Finally, women are being heard. Finally, men cannot just simply abuse a woman anymore or take advantage of them because of position. See, really, that's what Jesus tried to do back here in the first century. Why does he do all this with this woman and a number of other ladies that followed him? Because he wanted to raise the dignity and the value of women at a time when very few were. And Jesus speaks into these people's lives and he steps into the dregs of their brokenness. And he says, I give you value. I give you dignity. I will not devalue you based on who you are, what you did, where you're from. 
religious favoritism and prejudice. And is there anything more dangerous? Imagine someone who's far from God for a good portion of their life, and then the miracle of miracles happens, and they step into a church, and they stumble into this relationship with Jesus Christ, and they become a Christ follower. They hear this lethal message that Jesus Christ loves them, and he loves them so much that he died for them to give them eternal life. And it begins to seep deeply into their soul, and it begins to change their life. They humbly, they just receive and they respond to Christ and they come and they get involved in the church. And then maybe it's six months, a year, two years, five years, whatever the time is. Over time, they forget and you begin to look at other people around you. You begin to kind of turn your nose up. You begin to become this religious person that looks down at other people. And you forget that it was just six months ago or one year or five years ago that you were that person that just needed the love, acceptance, and forgiveness of Jesus Christ and the family of God. And now you begin to isolate yourself from those people that use bad language or drink or smoke or chew or go with girls that do. And you begin to remove yourself from them and look down on them and marginalize them. Oh, it's so easy to do. And none of us would ever admit we do it, but it just kind of, it just kind of happens. And Jesus talks about that one day in the public square. Actually, he talked about it all the time. He's having conversations with people who are far from God, and some of those religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they begin to draw and come around him. You know, these are people that are doing all the wrong things for all the wrong reasons, but they want to hear Jesus. And then these religious leaders come with their depths of spiritual discrimination and prejudice, and they're looking down their noses at all of these people that Jesus is talking to. <laughs> hey, uh, if, if you're the son of God, if you're really this spiritual person, if you're really this prophet, what in the world are you doing hanging out, listening to, talking with, drinking, and eating with this riffraff? Well, Jesus, as only he does, takes that as a wonderful challenge. He knows what's in their heart. And he turns around and he begins to teach. And this is the only time you can look at it in Luke chapter 15 where he tells three stories consecutively in the midst of his teaching. Most of us in here, you're familiar with it. He gives three stories that, that explain the value of people in humanity. He tells the story of a lost sheep, a lost coin, and the wayward son. And as these people are listening, those who are far from God, they're engaged and they're thinking, oh, somebody that isn't just telling us what to do, but that loves us and accepts us where we are. And then the religious leaders are over here. It says they're murmuring. They're mad. And Jesus is telling these stories about the lost coin, the lost sheep. 
that the lost sheep matters to the shepherd, the lost coin. This woman had 10 coins, but she lost one of them, but that 10 is part of something that's really special, expensive, and unique to her heart, and she's looking for it. And then you have this dad whose life is being ravaged by this son who's going wayward off the rails, and his heart is breaking. And you see that there's something of great value in each one of these three stories that is lost. It's missing. And as these religious leaders and the people are listening, they begin to perceive that Jesus is saying something very clearly. He's communicating something that's really important. And there's a couple of themes that, that, that are threaded through the mosaic of what he's talking about, a couple of really important ones. Number one is that people have great worth. They have great value before God. It doesn't matter how long you've been missing. It doesn't even matter how far you've drifted. It doesn't matter what your present condition is. What really matters is that if you're a sheep that's strayed, a coin that's been lost, a boy that's rebelled or a girl that's rebelled, God is saying he's waiting. And the second thing is, is all-out search that goes out because of the value. Jesus is saying that I'm seeking out people because of their great value, because of the love that the Father has for them. In each of these stories, it ends up then with them rejoicing. The lost sheep is found, the lost coin, and then the lost son, and the father throws an amazing party for them. And it says that when this happens down here on earth, Jesus says, when someone is lost and they're found, heaven rejoices. Why is that? Everyone matters to God. You have never seen anyone, loved ones, that doesn't matter to God. Every time you make eye contact with a waiter, with a waitress, with a millionaire, with a millennial, with a minority person, with a gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual person, whether it's an illegal immigrant, a politician you don't agree with and would never vote for, guess what? God loves them. <laughs> Isn't it easy to kind of get in our little bubble in our little world and forget that? Every single person you lock your eyes with matters to God. Every one of those people deserve yours and my respect, dignity, and honor, and ultimately the love that we can share with them. In the final hours, Jesus is on the cross, and he's dying. He's got two thieves, one that is following the crowd, and this other one, as he sees Jesus and how he's dying, he goes, this man doesn't deserve it. All he's tried to do is good. He's a prophet. And there's something that clicks in his head, and he's probably thinking, what am I going to do? I'm about ready to die. I can't change the course of my life. I can't fly straighter. I can't do better. And somewhere there's this thought, well, if this is a prophet and this is Jesus, what... Well, I've messed up my life, but maybe he can do something with it still. And he begins to think, man, what can I do? And he's, I'm going to throw up a prayer. Jesus, today, any chance you could remember me in paradise? I mean, you're my last hope. What does Jesus do? He turns to him and goes, yeah, as a matter of fact, you're going to be with me today. Because he responded to the love of God. 
I love that. I love that. Today. Yeah, yeah, you got it. Because Jesus didn't just hear his words, he saw his heart. And I think, loved ones, that that's where we want to make sure that as a church, as a pastor, as people, that we never forget that because it is so easy to remove ourselves from that. Uh, the rest of the story. We pulled up uh, to these two people on the tee, and I told Trina we're not going to do it, and she understood why. And she was happy. And we'd get with them, and we saw them at different places because the course was kind of backed up, so we would see them, and we'd banter, and, you know, very gracious conversation going both ways, uh, not any long or in-depth thing, but there was just a nice bantering, and um, I think it was the third hole that Trina had heard them introducing themselves to somebody, and the things that I was thinking were true, um, and, and finished and got done and we saw him in the parking lot and waved at him and, and said, have a good day. It kind of, I, I didn't feel bad about it at the time because I had some reasons why I just didn't want to play with anybody. But I thought, what a, I can't live like that. That's, that's not how I roll. I love being with people for the most part and most of the time. And I just kind of let it go. And I was on Friday morning. We were having our men's group. And um, we're just the, the week before, a bunch of big topics come up. And so they uh, kind of brought them up again so that I could begin to address them. And we were talking about the character of God. That you've got to understand the character of God and how he responds to people and to situations and we're talking, and, and, and all of a sudden, a couple of guys just said some things. I can't remember how they phrased it. But I told them the story of what had happened, talking about the character of God. It had nothing to do with prejudice. But as we're talking, I said, thanks, guys. I got, I, I got what I need to do now. See, I was thinking, if I engage these people... They're going to go, oh, you're a pastor. What do you believe about this? What does your church teach about that? And here's what I realized. I was thinking, oh, i got to come up with some kind of thing because if I give them what I really believe and tell them what I know the Bible says, I just assume they're going to reject me and, you know, and it's going to be seven holes of drudgery. And the guys were sharing, and nobody said this outright, but it just hit me all of a sudden. I don't have to give the answer. I don't have to download the theology and the doctrine of what we teach and believe. So here's how I'm going to deal with this from now on. And you're going to go, you've been the pastor here for 26 years and you're just now figuring this out? Well, sometimes you just get so caught up in the minutia and all the stuff that you know, you forget the simplicity of who Jesus is. You know what my answer is now? Here it is. Well, pastor, what do you believe and what does your teach, your church teach? Here's what I'm going to tell them. This is what I want you to know. God loves you so much. And he thinks you are so valuable that he gave his life for you. Yeah, but what about this other thing? You know what? I can't even remember what we teach about that. Here's what I tell people. 
And this is, this, this is the essence of, of our church, of me, I hope, that God loves you. And because of that, you just have so much value. That's why he died for you. Imagine if you just keep that the message. You want to argue? You want to debate? I don't want to do that. I just want you to know that. And I know some of you are probably thinking, well, oh boy, we got to tell them what kind of sinners they are. We gotta, you know, can I just tell you something? That's not my job. I mean, it is kind of. You know, I'm going to tell you, your sinners and everybody else, when you come here, because we all are. But I don't need to tell a person that I just meet. Well, you know, you're a sinner and you're going to hell. <laughs> you keep living like this, man. It's not good. You know, they just need to, first of all, hear the love of God and that they're valuable and that this God just died for them and that's what matters. So I took a long time to tell you that, but that's my greatest, that's my newest learning. You know, I probably would have said that 10 years ago, but now you get so whatever, you got to give all the good answers. That's the best answer. And I want us to remember as a church because we can become kind of a religious bubble and we forget to relate to people. And you know why we do that? Because you're like me. Ah, I'm, I'm tired. I, just, I don't want to get into it. Or I don't know what to say. I mean, I know what to say, but I didn't on that situation. So now I do. And here's what we say. God loves you and you are valuable. That's why he died for you. What are you going to tell people? What are you going to tell them? Hello? What are we going to tell them? And they're valuable. He's on a, he's on a heat-seeking mission to bring them in. And he uses people like me at a golf course. And he wants to use people like you at your work and school. What are we going to tell them? Yeah. Amen. Look at me. I want to tell you guys something, gals, something today. You are valuable, and God loves you. And don't forget that. That's the message. Because that's why Jesus gives those stories and says, I'm coming after you. And that's why I came for you. Would you stand? Some of us here today, maybe, maybe you're here and you've never made a decision to follow Jesus. You're valuable. He loves you and that's why he died for you. And you're here today, not by accident, but by his design, just like that woman at the well. And he wants you to know that and believe that. Some of us, maybe, we just have some vestiges in our life of people we don't want to be around or we don't agree with or we don't like. It's because of a skin color. It's because of a lifestyle. It's because of a thinking or political belief. And the Holy Spirit would come to you and say, I got to extract that out because it's only going to get deeper and worse.
And if that's you, just say, Lord, today I'm, I'm going to bring that. I'm going to bring that. Because I don't want my, I don't want to get toxic to people that you died for and you love. And maybe you just need to stop here and take a moment and just say, Lord, I confess this. Forgive me. I'm going to take steps to change that. So, Father, we come in all of our brokenness, as Aaron said earlier. We can sure look together. We can feel really good about ourselves, and then all of a sudden we see there's these little things that begin to creep up, and we wonder, that's not good. More importantly, that's not God. And, Lord, I... I, I I want to get back to the simplicity of you just love people, and that's what I'm called to do. And we can begin to reach our community again with the love of Christ. No prejudices, no favoritisms. It's all about Jesus. So Lord, begin to do that in our lives, I pray. Extricate those things that need to be extricated. If there's anybody here today and you've never made that decision, cross the line to follow Jesus, I would encourage you to just do it now. Say, Lord, I want that, I want to experience that love and that value. And I get it because of my relationship with Jesus. And just cross that line and say, God, I am a sinner and ask you to forgive me. And then make that fresh start today. Lord, I pray over our church. You know the hearts, you know the intentions of every one of us. And you can speak so much more clearly than I can. I pray that you would touch people today where they are. Challenge them and love them. Love us to become more like you. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Everybody said amen. Amen. Two things. We're going to close with a song. But would you just remember to pray uh, tomorrow for me at uh, about... 11 o'clock, I got a funeral here, and uh, just ask you to pray toward that for me, okay? And let's sing, we'll be done.